So I, I thought I'd start by sharing a story from the suttas uh, with you. Uh, this is from the stories that were written down from the time of the Buddha. First they were orally transmitted and then written down, um, usually about various things that happened that were teachings of the Buddha or stories of what happened to him. So this is one that's about one of the shortest and pithiest teachings that the Buddha gave uh, that made someone enlightened. So uh, might be a good one for tonight. So I've heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindika's monastery. So I always start out by saying where the locale is, right, these stories. Now at that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living in Supraka by the seashore. He was worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, given homage, a recipient of robes, alm food, lodgings, and medical requisites for the sick. Then once when he was alone in seclusion, this line of thinking arose in his awareness. Now of those who in this world are arahants, or who have entered the path of arahantship, am I one? So arahant is basically an enlightened person. So this guy, Bahia, is a spiritual practitioner living by the seaside and suddenly occurs to him, I wonder if I'm enlightened. So then a a devata, who had once been a blood relative of Bahia of the bark cloth, compassionate, desiring his welfare, knowing with her own awareness the line of thinking that had arisen in his awareness, went to where he was staying and spoke to him. So this is like a spirit uh, devata. Uh, and in this case, in the Buddhist teaching, uh, you know, beings are reborn. So it's saying that this being was actually a past relative of his and heard his question and thought he, she would come and help him out. Right. And her answer is basically, no, you're not. Okay. <laughs> so she says, you, Bahia, are neither an arahant, nor have you entered the path of arahantship. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become an arahant or enter the path of arahantship. So... You are not even close, nor are you on the way. So, so this is kind of bad news for Bahia, right? So he says, but who living in this world with its devas is an arhat, or has entered the path to arhatship? So basically, if I'm not, who is? Right? Who is and who can teach me this? Right? So then basically this devata says, oh, there's, uh, you're in luck. There's this, this uh, being wandering around named the Buddha. And you can go and learn from him. So then, uh, now I'm starting to paraphrase, as you can tell, right? So Bahia goes to try and find the Buddha. And at that time, the Buddha is going off in his alms round. So the monks would go out with their bowl you know, once a day and receive food. And uh, they could only eat this food before noon. So you know, they're kind of on a time schedule, right? So Bahia shows up and says, um, can you teach me? And Buddha says, well, you know, it's not a good time right now. We're on alms round. So uh, why don't you come back afterwards? So he says, no, no, I I really want to learn. Can you please teach me? Uh, I don't know how long my life is going to be. I really am urgent about this. So Buddha says once again to him, "Um, just wait. Right after arms round, I'll teach you. And he comes back again and says, no, no, really, I I really need to learn. You know, I don't know when the time of my death is. So Buddha says, all right. So then this was what he says to him. Then, Bhaiya, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, 
only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then by you there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of dukkha, the end of suffering, end of stress. So Bahia bows, takes this in, uh, and he, according to the story, actually gets enlightened from hearing this. So he really gets it in his heart. He's freed. And then on his way home, he actually gets gored by a bull and dies. So it was good that he had that urgency, right? Yeah. So this is really one of the most pithy teachings, right? So uh, I'll say it again. So in reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. So what does that mean really, right? And the scene is only the scene. It seems like one of those kind of obvious and yet cryptic things spiritual teachers say. It's kind of annoying. Like, of course the scene is the scene. So when is it not that, right? When, when, do we, when does it go beyond that? And what's, what's the story with that? So you think about just during the sitting that we had here. Um, I noticed that there's various sounds outside, right? It's like uh, some honking, like whoop, whoop, right? So you hear these different sounds and... If we're just hearing them and hearing those sounds, then that's in the hearing is just the heard, right? But oftentimes our mind starts to take it another few steps, right? So when you might identify car alarm, right? So that's actually a moment of perception, like identifying sound like something, right? Then you might go further, another thought, I wonder if that's my car, right? Then you imagine uh, someone might be breaking into your car, right? You see the broken glass, you see your uh, empty slot where your CD player used to be or something like that, right? So the mind starts, you know, making all this story up from the, this, just the sound that's come, right? So this is where we create a lot of suffering for ourselves, right? So we take it from just the sound, the basic sound, onto a lot of other story. And that story creates a whole world that never actually happened. So i talk a little bit also about this aspect of perception. So there was this sound that I tried to imitate, right? And then maybe your mind went car alarm, right? So that is actually a really interesting moment uh, of identifying something, right? We see something, sort of colors, and then we identify what it is, right? We hear something, we identify what it is. Sometimes you smell something, and then you can identify, oh, it's wood smoke or... Uh, pancakes or something like that, right? So what's interesting to see is the moment before you identify that. 
So it's most apparent when it's harder for you to identify something. So if there's a smell that comes and you don't know exactly what it is right away, you think, what is that? Eggs? No. Pancakes? You know, you're, you're still guessing what it is. So in that moment, you can kind of see or observe the mind in its process of perception, right? Or sometimes uh, you might meet someone and you can't exactly remember their name, right? So you're kind of going, hmm, Joe, Bob, Stan, you know, you're trying to get what it is. And it sometimes feels like uh, you're trying to strike a match, you know, and you keep trying to strike a match and it's not striking, right? And sometimes you see people doing this, like, you know, trying to get the, the name, right? So there's some element of that in the process of trying to identify, right? So when it does happen, it sometimes is neat to be able to see that, how it arises as, it's sort of an impersonal thing that happens, right? That you're able to perceive something. So some things are more obvious, like car alarm, right? Um, other times, some, sometimes someone's name, I've found that, you see the person and you know that you know them, but you can't come up with the name, right? And then suddenly it might come, like boom. So what's interesting to observe there is also that it's not really totally in our control, right? If it was, we wouldn't forget people's names, right? Or we wouldn't be going, Joe, Bob, Scott, right? <laughs> we would always have it, right? So it's, it's kind of a part of just an impersonal process of perception that happens. So sometimes it comes up as a name, a, a word label. Sometimes it's not, right? So fortunately, every time that you go to sit down, you're not going fork, knife, plate, glass. You know, it would be very noisy if you did that, right? <laughs> but there's a way in which you're recognizing what those things are and what you have to do with them in order to eat, right? You can also see this with um, little kids who don't know what these things are, you know, who are kind of testing out, right? So they want to touch everything. They want to put everything in their mouth, see what it tastes like. They want to try uh, eating uh, or you're putting the fork in the liquid and you know try that out and stuff like that, right? So they're kind of building that base of perception, you know, so they they can throw up those labels more easily, right? So this is also one of the elements that um, Buddha talked about in a teaching about uh, five skandhas, so five different categories of things that it's helpful to pay attention to. So one of them is this element of um, perception. And particularly interesting is also to pay attention to when we're wrong, right? We misidentify something. So oftentimes we believe whatever pops up in our head as the truth of something, right? And like we're pretty confident about that, right? So it can be good to see the times when occasionally something comes up or maybe frequently that isn't actually a true perception. So simple ones, it could be someone's name. Other times it could be uh, misperceiving an object. It's easier to see when your mind is sort of quiet and then you can see something pop up and it's like, what was that? So I remember um, being in a a meditation uh, center And when I come out of the meditation hall, there was a kind of water heater thing and a rock and like a leaf thing near it. And for some reason, when I stepped outside there, um, it looked to me like a monkey. But but this was in Oregon, right? So it was unlikely it was actually going to be a monkey, right? 
but whenever I'd come out of the meditation hall, the perception would arise monkey. Right? So the first time I noticed, I just thought it was funny. You know, it's like, monkey? It's not a monkey. Right? And then the next time, the same thing happened. Right? Also, I came out and it was like, monkey. And then I started to get annoyed at the misperception. It's like, I already decided that wasn't a monkey. Now why is it still saying monkey, right? Uh, next time again, monkey. Like, oh, not monkey, not monkey, right? <laughs> so we're getting angry at the perception that's arising that wasn't really true. So then I was able to, to see, you know, actually this is just coming. This is just a conditioned, uh, some kind of conditioned aspect that's wrong, right? Conditioned perception arising that's wrong. Like, uh, and it's continuing to arise even though I know it's wrong. Right, for some reason. Um, so this actually happens to us in our life, like relatively frequently. Right? And it also causes us a fair amount of trouble when we uh, misidentify it like that. And it can happen both on sort of a small scale and on a large scale. Right? I was um, teaching this class um, through my job in... Uh, Contra Costa County, and uh, it was like a nonprofit management thing. And before the class, I kind of went outside and was messing with the coffees and the muffins and things like that. And then someone came in the class who was a little bit, um, she was like a little bit late and kind of flustered. And um, she was really upset because she couldn't find the place easily. And uh, so she started yelling at me like, you know, ah, oh, the place is really badly marked and you should have put up signs and... Um, why didn't you, you know, so, so on and on, like in this vein, right? So fortunately, I wasn't taking it personally. It wasn't actually my job to do that at all. Right? So I was able to be very sympathetic, and she found it hard to find a parking place. I was like, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating when you can't find a parking place. Did you try the street across the way? She continued on for a while, and then, and then she decided to go out and look for a parking space. So then when she came back in, actually, I'd already started the class, and... Um, she was really surprised to see me as the one teaching the class. So she basically thought I was the muffin girl, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the muffin and coffee person who uh, it was okay to yell at, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could see her surprised that I was actually the teacher of the class. So then she was very, you know, felt bad about it and um, was very apologetic and super nice the rest of the time, and, you know, invited me to lunch and, you know, <laughs> like that. So, you know, these misperceptions, you know, there's an idea of who should be doing what, right? Or like, I think you're this person or that person, right? So you can get in trouble in that way, too. Right? So basically, you know, we should not always believe our perceptions. You know, in the cognized is just the cognized. So our thoughts are just thoughts, right? It's helpful to keep them in perspective like that, right? And it's very difficult, too, because a lot of our world is built up on our thoughts, right? There are certain kinds of perception that um, is actually part of the teaching that it's helpful to cultivate, too, right? So both perception of an object, but also sort of perception of a pattern, right? So if you're just beginning in meditation and trying to think about, you know, how should I develop the practice, um, you know, what am I supposed to be paying attention to when I'm outside of meditation? There are actually a number of different patterns that can be helpful to start to notice around. Right? 
So noticing patterns is actually, um, according to sort of different educational theories, like a way that we learn, right? So a way you get good at something is by getting better at recognizing patterns. So for instance, um, I don't know if anyone here plays Scrabble, the game Scrabble, right? So the people who are really good at Scrabble, it's not necessarily that they have the biggest vocabulary or that they uh, can, you know, look at all the letters and individually go through them, but they're actually good at quickly recognizing patterns of what could be a word, right? So, uh, like, ing is a common ending of a word, right? Or re is a common beginning of a word in English, right? So if you're, like, a Scrabble player and you see those things, like, oh, okay, I might have a big word, right? Or also in chess, right, people notice different patterns, about the movement of chess pieces. Like, uh, so it's more than just being able to see one individual move, right? being able to see like, some whole pattern of how things are playing out. Right? So in whatever that you're doing in your life, you probably have developed certain awareness of patterns. Right? Even driving, right, to be safe, you notice certain patterns of tra- traffic and so on. Right? So here's some of the patterns that are helpful to notice. Uh, about the way things are in Dhamma. So one is the three characteristics of existence. So number one, everything changes. Anicca. So this is one that is sort of more uh, intellectually obvious to us. It's like, yeah, of course everything changes. That's that's true. We know that, right? There's a way in which if we really got that, we would really not suffer as much as we do. So the other one is anatta, or the teaching of non-self. So if everything is always changing, then there's not really one solid, continuous thing in any of us or in anything. That's basically what that one is. And then the third one is uh, dukkha, or either unsatisfactoriness, stress, suffering. So because everything is always changing, our relationship to phenomenon, if we're seeking some permanent happiness in that, will always lead to unsatisfaction. So what would it be like if we actually perceived this pattern? So let's look at change. So with anicca, so take this thing here, this like wooden stand thing. So right now, there should be a better name than wooden stand, but we'll call it the wooden stand, right? Podium, maybe? Podium, yeah. So right now it's called podium, right? So we look at this thing. It looks like podium. But if you cast your mind back to the origins of podium, right, you can imagine like a little seed was planted in the ground, grew up to be a plant, grew up to be a tree, right? Tree is cut down. That's made into lumber, made into different planks, Planks get taken on big truck to a factory. Uh, factory, they get assembled in some way, sanded, uh, coated with some kind of coating. Then it's in the podium shop. Gil goes shopping one day for podium, <laughs> sees his podium, brings it back, puts it here. Right. So that's the story of podium until now. Right? Then future of podium could be something like this. So podium lives its very useful life here for next 10 years, maybe. It starts to get a little worn around the edges. 
the sheen starts to go off it. Another 10 years, starting to develop splinters. Board of uh, IMC says that's too dangerous, podium. Now it's time to recycle, right? So I uh, get sent off to a uh, trash or recycling kind of thing, uh, where it then starts to decay more, right? So podium starts to become a little more shaggy on the outside, uh, more splinters, starts falling apart, turning more pulpy. Podium now sitting in the rain a lot, right? Getting all mushy, right? Uh, then little insects come to live inside of it, right? Then it becomes pretty much like a pile. Slowly pile wears down, dust, right? Then gone, right? So that's the story of podium right now, right? So uh, right now we see it like, oh, this is podium, right? This is a thing. But actually there's this whole trajectory. And at the moment it's true, it is a podium, but it's not like it's a solid, continuous thing, right? And actually it's the same with us too, right? It's a little bit less um, pleasant to reflect on that, you know? <laughs> Go through our own story in this way, but you can probably extrapolate, right? <laughs> From the story of podium, <laughs> our origins and where we're headed, right? Like same thing. And it's the same thing with like every uh, object in this world, like everything in the world. You know, comes into being, lives out a life, you know, uh, and an ending. So our perception is usually of at the moment what it is, like who p- different people are, what things are. And it's not wrong, but it's only part of the story, right? So if we actually saw that things were changing all the time in some way, then our attachment to it being just the way it is would not be there as much. Right? So we can enjoy podium in its current podiumness. And then when it started to decay and become actually more like wood pulp or something, then that would be okay. It would just be the way it is. Right? So most of you are probably not attached to this podium so much, but you can think of many other things in our lives or people in our lives or our own bodies in which we're very attached to it being a certain way. Right? Like I want my hair to stay this color, um, I want my body to stay this certain way. Sometimes it's I want my body to not be this way, right? You know, but it's all just a moment in this whole process. Right? So there's one uh, Thai teacher called Ajahn Chah, very wise Thai monk, um, who is now passed away. But there's a story about him talking to a monk. I think when he was in the hospital, in the hosp- and the monk was very sad, and uh, he showed him a glass and said, uh, you see this? What do you see here? He said, oh, it's a glass. It's very beautiful. And Ajahn Chah said, well, to me, the glass is already broken. That's the difference. Right? So he could grasp that whole uh, frame, like that whole journey. So when the glass actually broke, it wasn't going to be like this terrible, terrible thing. You know? Just like, yeah, this is chapter and the story of glass. It's okay. Right? So that's what it would be like if we actually perceive Anicca, right? And then that's related to also perceiving that there's not a solid self. So what's the implication if we actually perceived this not solid self in things? So according to Buddhist teachings, everything comes about due to conditions, including ourselves, including everything that happens in the world. So one element of that is that we understand that when things happen, they happen in a certain way, and that's the way it is. So you can act and you can react in the world, 
but basically it doesn't need to bother you as much as it does. So an example from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, another great Buddhist teacher. So he has this teaching of the empty boat. So he says, if you're on a, a lake and you're rowing a boat and another boat bumps into your boat, if the boat is empty, you might push the boat away, but you probably won't be mad at the boat. right? Because you understand the wind blew the boat, the waves, the boat had a rope, you know, a certain length. Like that's why the boat came and bumped into you, right? So that's the boat, you know. But if boat bumps into you and there's another person in the boat, then you get really mad at that person, right? Like, hey, why'd you row your boat into me? Didn't you see me coming? Oh, you know. So if we really understood this aspect of non-solid self, that things happen because of conditions, uh, actually we could take action in the world more like pushing the empty boat away, right? So it's not that you don't push the boat away, you know, the boat has bumped into you, it needs to move, but you can do it without such a big, um, huge sense of added, right? And then what about the, the third one, the dukkha, right? So perceiving this unsatisfactoriness. So what's the implications to that? So with the um, monks, but that was fairly hardcore about this, said, you know, uh, sense pleasures in the world are like, uh, seeking sense pleasures is like licking honey off a sharp knife, <laughs> right? Oh. So, you know, it seems really great, but there's a real cut to it, right? On the other hand, uh, you know, what does this mean about dukkha and satisfactoriness? So it, some of you may have heard this story of the Buddha's life. And um, basically, he led a rel- relatively charmed life as a young person. Right? Uh, he had everything he needed. Um, his family was wealthy. Um, and then he had some uh, curiosity about the world. He uh, escaped from his pleasant life. This is the short form, right? And he saw a sick person, a dead person, an old person, and then a spiritual seeker. So these things really caused him some uh, concern and sort of existential angst. Because the person who was with said, yes, this is the, the way of everyone. Everyone gets sick, everyone gets old, everyone dies, right? So this kind of kicked him off on his enlightenment uh, journey, his spiritual search, right? So what is the meaning of it all if everyone's going to get sick, get old, and die? Right? So then many years later, he gets enlightened. Um, he go, then he goes off and teaches about 40 years. So fast forward to the end of his life. And he's 80 years old, so sounds like he got old too, right? Uh, he has his last meal. He actually kind of knows when he's going to die, but he has a meal that um, basically makes him sick, right? And then he dies, right? So, okay, so he's, he seemed to have found the answer, but it also sounds kind of like he got old and he got sick and he died, right? <laughs> so part of that is, uh, I feel like, helpful because... That's part of our human life. It's not that actually what he learned or what enlightenment is, is escaping that in some way. So some aspects of life that are difficult are just going to be there. But there are other aspects of dukkha, which they're called shooting the second arrow. So us making things worse than they actually have to be. So an example is, uh, supposing you have a, a, a twinge, you're sitting there trying to meditate, and you have this twinge in your knee. So you feel something sharp. 
and then you register that as pain, right? So if you're in, if you're in this, the sensed is just the sensed. You could just stop at the twinge, right? So you could feel that twinge. Maybe you feel it like wiggling, whatever it's doing. Right? Then if you take it a step further, you usually have some perception, like knee pain. Right? My knee hurts. So it's not pleasant. It's not like something you would want to wrap up and give someone as a gift. But, you know, there it is at the moment, a twinge, right? Then the mind steps in and we start uh, going on, right? So I wonder how long the sitting is. If I have to sit here much longer, I'm probably going to have permanent knee damage. You know, uh, I remember when this started happening some years ago and then uh, you know, I couldn't walk for a while. I wonder if I should move. Well, depends when the bell's going to ring, you know, uh, on and on like that, right? So that's all the second arrow. So the first part of dukkha is that unpleasant sensation of the knee. And the second arrow is the one that we shoot ourselves, which is the story of it, right? The terrible story of it. So I remember noticing um, at a certain point that whenever I had some, uh, some kind of sickness or something, even the smallest thing like sinus pain or slight ankle pain, at some point would arise the thought, like, this is going to last forever. Yeah. So you know, then I imagine my life with the sinus pain, you know, or my life without my foot or, you know, something like that, right? So then, uh, you know, more recently I noticed that it sometimes arises still, but I can just laugh at it because it's just a thought, right? It's like sort of an expected visitor whenever I have some kind of physical uh, pain or sensation, right? So that is just seeing that as a thought is in the cognized is just the cognized, right? I mean, it can just sort of, it's just sort of like a funny friend that visits every time there's a pain, right? And then also I notice that if I can actually just feel that pain, like just feel the unpleasantness of it, just be with that sensation, then even that visitor doesn't come, right? So usually there's a sensation, it's unpleasant, then from the unpleasantness, this thought is my projection of aversion to it, right? So noticing it on any of those levels brings some greater freedom. So either noticing just the pain, right? Noticing just the thought, this is going to last forever, right? Uh, but if not, then we're on down the road of, uh, you know, having to live the rest of my life without the foot and, you know, all the terrible story that, you know, creates so much more pain than the actual momentary twinge in the ankle did, right? So if we lived our lives with that perception, then we would see that, you know, we don't have to shoot that second arrow, right? I think Mark Twain said, like some of the worst things in my life never happened to me, right? right? Like we make up these stories and then, you know. So you can kind of reflect on this in your life. So, you know, this aspect of change, you know, seeing things in their larger context like this. Um, reflecting on anatta or not permanent self. That can be a sort of harder one, but a related kind of thing. Um, and reflecting on this dukkha, you know, how do we relate to things in this way? Other patterns are helpful to pick up. Um, wholesome and unwholesome mind states. Right? So knowing when what's arising in us is wholesome. Knowing when what's arising in us is unwholesome. Right? So this is another kind of pith instruction uh, of the Buddhas according to uh, what is right effort. So knowing when something wholesome has arisen and then knowing the conditions to cultivate that along. Knowing when something unwholesome has arisen and letting go of it. And then avoiding the conditions for that to arise. Right. 
So wholesome is uh, states like generosity, loving kindness, compassion, right? Unwholesome states like uh, hatred, fear, irate anger, things like that, right? So just even to know when has that arisen, right, is very helpful. And that's also some manner of perception, right? Similar to how we perceive, you know, someone's name or we perceive objects, we can start developing perception of different mind states, different states as they arise in ourselves, right? In our mind, in our body, right? And this is where actually the sitting meditation can be really helpful because you get to practice in kind of like laboratory conditions, right? So it can be hard in the world if you're, you know, going around and driving and stuff to be able to track all of your emotional life while you're doing other things. So the sitting meditation is like a good uh, capsule in which there's nothing else you have to pay attention to. So it's easier to pay attention to, like, well, what is this mind state that's arisen, right? And oftentimes, as you're kind of rehashing, the day's rehash comes up, right? Maybe something happens in memory that makes you mad. And then learn how to feel that. You know, learn how to feel that, learn how to recognize that, right? Recognizing that state, like, okay, this is anger, this is what this feels like. Like, learn how to track fear, this is fear, this is what this feels like in my body, right? Also good to learn how to track the positive, wholesome, right? This is generosity, this is what this feels like, right? This is loving kindness, this is compassion, right? So developing that kind of perception is really good because that helps you then when you're out in the world doing more complex things. So maybe that's enough for me to say, uh, share today. So so you can practice either with this bahia thing, you know, in the scene is just the scene, heard is just the heard, cognized is just the cognized, sensed is just the sensed. So you experiment with that, check it out. You know. Is it possible to just hear a sound and just be hearing it? Also, you can practice with this development of the perception. So perception of change in the world. Perception of things not being necessarily as solid as we think they are. Right? The perception of uh, something that happens that is suffering. And are we making it more suffering? Right? And then also practicing with perception of wholesome states and unwholesome states. That's kind of a lot to do, but you know, whichever one grabs you, <laughs> whichever one is most interesting to you, you know, check it out this week and see. So I'll leave time for some comments or questions. Does this resonate with anything that you felt either today or? In the past, anything not make sense? Yes, good one. Um, I had a real vivid experience this week of finding myself in a snit. Hmm. It's I had three or four really good days where where things just rolled off of me, and then I had one of these little. I wanted to jump on everything, and because it hadn't visited me for a while, it was really vivid. The snit hadn't visited. The snit hadn't visited, right. so that I wanted to attach something <laughs> to, to, to the things that were happening, and it hadn't been there. And I, I was like, 
well, you could lose this. And I had a lot of trouble losing it. Finally, it just wandered off on its own. But, mm. but is there more skillful ways to be able to, when you find yourself primed to, to, to have a fit? I mean, I was looking for something to happen that I could grasp onto and get self-righteous about or react to. It's just, I was just waiting for it. It was uh-huh. not right. pleasant. So, uh, so the snit was like being in a bad mood kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and then finding yourself more reactive to things. Yes, yes. And, uh, and you said the snit was there for several days? No, there, there was no snit. It okay. was like I was, had a very equanimous few days. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, midday on the fourth day, I yeah. was just reactive yeah. or potentially reactive. So it's good that you, uh, you recognize that. So that's actually the unwhol- an unwholesome mind state of some sort, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it's good to also know uh, what are some of the conditions that created that, if you can, mm-hmm. right? And then, of course, avoid those conditions. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, like, I know some of those conditions for me are, like, not getting enough sleep, right, not eating, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, being really cold, right? So, you know, there's some physical conditions that as mm-hmm. humans tend to make us tend towards snit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you're in it, it's just practicing with it, you know, so just knowing that this is a mind state. And it's really interesting to see, like, this just colors our world, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the mailbox that otherwise was just a mailbox is, like, in our way and we want to kick it, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that, right? This is innocently being a mailbox and suddenly it's, like, a problem, right? Um, so who's making that a problem, right? You know, it's, it's yeah. the, the coloration of the, the mind state, right? Um, so sometimes you can you know, reflect on, uh, on Anicca and this and um, just feel this, you know, just feel it in your body as much as possible, right? So because everything changes, this is visiting for a while, and sometimes it feels like things last because they're not given attention in some way, you know? Mm-hmm. And also because we have resistance to it. So particularly if you had, like, a bunch of calm days before it, and then this thing comes up, and then you, you're aversive to your aversion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not enough that you're like in the snit, but then you're disliking the snit, right? <laughs> so pushing that away in some way. Mm-hmm. So really, whatever it is that comes to visit you, you know, it's like just to be with it in as open-hearted a way as you can. So it's like, okay, this is snit. Here we are. You know, this is this is bad mood. And what does that feel like? You know, to have bad mood. You know. Like, what does it feel like in my body? What does it feel like in my heart? You know. You can also kind of have some compassion for yourself in this mm-hmm. case, because particularly if you notice, you know, it was so much better before, and now it's like this, and when will it get better? You know. Because uh, this is part of the human condition, and part of the human condition that all of us experience. Mm-hmm. So you know, having compassion for that, so maybe free from suffering. You know, this is difficult. It's difficult to be caught in this mind state like that, you know. Like, I care about that, just holding that with some compassion. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it's kind of, this is kind of the ups and downs of samsara. It's like, <laughs> uh, even the Buddha didn't have all good days. You know? <laughs> there were days people tried to kill him and, you know, bad, <laughs> bad things happened. So, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's not like there's something wrong when something like that happens, too. I think sometimes mm-hmm. when we're doing spiritual practice, it feels like, oh, well, when something happens or you have this bad mind state, I must be doing something wrong, you know. 
Like, how can I get back to the way it was before when everything was peaceful, right? So that also is in some way like us not acknowledging change, you know, mm-hmm. like wanting, you know, I, I got everything fine, so you know, how can I fix it back to when it was fine? Mm-hmm. Like, that ain't how it's going to be here in the <laughs> here in the world of change, you know. It's it's going to get all sides. So I think just you know being there and like witnessing as much as possible. Is that helpful? Yeah. Thanks. Any suggestions uh, regarding um, gaining uh, the capability of of seeing the conditions form before you find yourself realizing you're in a snit? I mean, I I can catch myself in a snit. Yeah. I mean, that there I am. Yeah. But it's it's very hard to track the various things that might have gotten me there. Pre-snit. Yeah. 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 Pre-snit conditions. Yeah. Um, I think it's like we can become more aware uh, early and earlier, you know, noticing things. So it's like sometimes you start noticing right when you're in, you know, a full vo- volcanic eruption. It's like, oh, I'm angry. Right. Like, you know, right. Everyone else knew that a little earlier than, you know, but <laughs> here it is now, you know, angry. So then, you know, just starting to notice that and recognize that sort of that developing that perception of that. Um, Sometimes even having an intention to develop that perception helps. You know, taking this intention, like, I, you know, I, I want to pay attention to anger, to whatever it is, you know. Um, so then you, you can slowly try and um, become aware of that earlier and earlier in that. So maybe it's just, just pre-eruption or, you know. Um, and part of that is, I think, becoming more sensitive to body and the mind because there usually are some clues before the complete eruption. You're sort of starting to feel something. Um, kind of like with the physical sense, like you can feel when you're beginning to get hungry sometimes, you know, and then you can feel when you're really hungry, right? But so you start to develop this sense of being like a little bit hungry, right? Um, and you can kind of track that. So similarly, like like one can develop tracking of the emotion sort of things, like anger. Um, and sometimes I actually say this is related to this whole snit thing, is that there's something on the surface, like anger or something like that, and it seems to be rolling on, and you're trying to pay attention to that and be with that, but there also is actually something underneath of that fueling it, right? So like you mentioned, like self-righteousness. So self-righteousness is a good sub-fuel for a good long anger, right? Um, or sometimes fear, right? It can be a big fuel for something like that, right? So sometimes being able to go underneath of what is the apparent uh, snit or, you know, emotional state there into, you know, what's, what is there that may be fueling that and then dropping into that, like sensing that in some way can be helpful. Others? Comments? Questions? I have another question. Um, You're highly trained in in, uh, the business world, uh, MBA and stuff like that. And how do you um, balance just the enormous amount of planning and work uh, with um, practice? That's a good question. Um, So planning is actually just thought in the mind, in the present, right? So in the cognizer, just the cognized, right? So I think the more that we can be 
with what is actually happening, then the more sort of planning, things like that, can sort of take their place as opposed to being continuously done in a way that is fueled by some like ongoing anxiety or something like that, right? So, so in this cognize is just the cognize thing means that uh, you're in Buddhist teaching, the mind is a sixth sense, right? So you have your smelling, tasting, uh, feeling, seeing, hearing, right? Regular five you learn in first grade, right? And the sixth one is the mind and all mind objects. So mind objects includes uh, images, memory. Memory is just a thought in the present using the mind door, right? Plans. Planning is just a thought in the present using the mind door, right? So in that way, it's just like any other thought that can happen. But what I've noticed with the planning is that so the more that you allow yourself to sort of proliferate on things, like a lot of planning can get out of control because there's some fear behind it or something like that. Um, it doesn't sort of take its place, you know. Mm. But when you can be more in the moment, then you can kind of like, now it's time for planning and planning time. And then, you know, let it go because it's just thoughts. Then also realize like you can make the plan, but the plan isn't actually the future. Yeah. <laughs> so then you make the plan and then things might happen uh, differently. So let it play out. Right? So this can also be interesting, too, is to notice like if you're sitting in meditation or even just in your life, like you have all these ideas about what's going to happen. And you might spend a lot of time like ruminating on that. Like you're kind of investing a lot of energy into paying attention to your thoughts about what's going to happen. So just kind of like dog ear that little page. And then see how things really happen. (laughs) Like, and see what the relationship is to uh, what you thought would happen, spend all this time ruminating on to what actually happens. So many times we have these sort of thoughts of the future, plans in which I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and you know, this kind of thing, right? And um, most times the other person didn't get the script. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, occasionally it plays out in a beautiful way. And in those days, you should just be very happy. It's like, uh, you know, a lucky day for you. But most of the time, they got their own script going on, right? So they don't, you know, so a lot of the planning that we do for things, you know, it just doesn't, uh, it just doesn't help anything. It's just really for, for nothing, you know. Um, so, yeah. Others? Thoughts? Questions? Yeah. How do you um, I mean I, I I understand about being in the moment but doing it's different and feeling your body and being aware of your thoughts. It's really a lot different to actually do it. But as it relates to being ill hmm. and the, the kind of surrender to how you feel and then the fear of what it means. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's um, a really tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could speak to that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think part of the teaching that's helpful is to recognize that, you know, like you're saying about being in the moment, you know, there's a theory of it, right? 
and then it's hard to do in practice, and particularly in difficult circumstances, right? But actually, that's all that exists is the moment, right? So there's the experience of the physical body. There's the experience of what we're hearing, what we're seeing, so on. Uh, and then, you know, like I was saying, that there's the mind and the mind objects. And all of that is actually also happening in the moment, right? So anything that we imagine outside of that is still happening in the moment, the thought in the moment. So with being sick, it's like there's the experience of the physical body in the moment, and in some way, the most compassionate thing is to be able to be there to whatever extent we can with that experience, right? And then usually there'll be some, uh, some amount of thoughts about that, oftentimes fear, right? Because uh, unpleasant, difficult experience, and then maybe also some information about, you know, it's this disease and it has this prognosis or this projection and so on, right? So it's, it's a, a tough balance, I think, between... Um, you know, having to make plans and make decisions, you know, like this gentleman was saying, like you do have to sort of make decisions and make plans, but then as much as possible trying to do that and then, you know, let go of it. So recognizing that, you know, the thinking part, like, like thinking is very useful, I think, for stuff in our regular life. And perception is very useful, right? It helps you figure out which is your car and, you know, which is your house, right? Which are your shoes when you leave here and so on, right? Um, but then there's all this added stuff that we create, you know, so it's really like the stories or the fears or so on, right? And it's hard to differentiate. Like if you're, if you're feeling really sick and you, you know, you're, you're trying to do as much as you can to get better from it or get information and stuff, like how much is spinning out and how much is really wisdom, right? Um, so I mean, you can only, all you can do with it is sort of the best that you can, I think. Um, and as well as the awareness sort of practice of being in the moment, I think it's really helpful to do this compassion practice you are a loving kindness practice because this is really one of the elements of being a human that's really difficult you know and that all of us to some extent experience like you have this physical body and the physical body sometimes gets sick you know and it's really not in our control i mean we can do things we can create some conditions to keep it healthier and exercise and eat well and stuff like that but that is still no guarantee whatsoever right I think there's also some danger in spiritual life or spiritual circles is sometimes then people get into the sense of like, well, I could make myself better. Like if only I was more spiritual or, you know, as a better practitioner, like I would be totally healthy, right? Um, so once again, referring to the story of the Buddha who got sick and got old and died, right? So it's just really not, you know, it's, it's going to happen to everyone to some extent. Maybe you won't get that sick, but, you know. And maybe you won't get old, but death certainly, right? So, uh, I mean, some compassion for ourselves as just embodied creatures, you know, and sometimes I think feeling that connection with, even not just, not just humans, but like all animals, you know, any sentient life uh, goes through uh, having difficulty in some way, right? Like we're actually really, these really kind of delicate creatures, you know. I mean, you can kind of take it for granted if you have a life in which you get to eat pretty regularly, and you have fresh water regularly, right? But, uh, you know, go for, like, more than several hours or, you know, a day without food, and, like, you're feeling it, right? <laughs> like, start to suffer, right? I work uh, downtown, and today the water shut off, right, downtown San Francisco, for, uh, like, some main broke and this and that, right? So for a couple hours, the water was out, and suddenly I was like, wait a minute, no water, you know? 
Uh, and he realized, like, humans need water, you know? <laughs> I mean, humans really need water. That's, <laughs> it's not good for us when there's not water, right? So it's kind of like, uh, I think sometimes when you're sick, I mean, on a positive way, like, you're actually able to touch into that, uh, that delicacy of life in a way that a lot of us take totally, you know, disregard kind of bring you into contact with that. Like there is this poignancy of all of our lives, you know, like this Bahia, he, he got it. You know, he's like, I don't know when I'm going to die. And, uh, you know, it's good. He was, he was so urgent about that because he got gored by a bull five minutes later. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's just this poignancy that uh, this is part of us not, I think, being able to perceive the change, change of life is that we usually project when we're healthy, we're going to be healthy, you know. Like, I don't, I usually take for granted my foot until it starts to hurt, right? I project its continued health and service, you know, <laughs> in walking around, and then it starts to hurt, and suddenly you no- notice it, and it's like a big problem, right? So you just kind of do the best that you can with it, I think, both in the awareness practice, but also really the heart practices are really important, so loving kindness. Sometimes I just like to hear the sound of my own voice, um, but uh, be that as it may, um, for me, uh, the perception that you spoke of, you know, what is per- perhaps correct and what's incorrect and how it manifests itself and I feel it within my body, um, for me, from the moment I wake to the moment I go to sleep, it's a matter of doing rather than thinking. It's like shaving, showering, and, uh, you know, getting ready for work. It's, I don't think about it, I just do it. And, you know, you can try or you can do. You know, you can try to put on your shoe or you can put it on. You know, you can think about it, but it's, once you start doing it, it's automatic. There's no even thinking process involved. Right. It's almost like a heartbeat. In fact, it is. You know, it's the sound of my own drum. You know, it's doing what it's supposed to do, and I just follow it. And if I follow that heartbeat, it's more simple than just thinking about things. Yeah. And for me, the practice starts with acronyms almost. You know, fear is false evaluation of actual reality, the cognizant. And then love is another acronym I use, which is love, omnipresence, victorious, enlightenment. So when I go to that side, which is correct, and apply it, not think about just do it Mm. by plugging into my own source uh, then um, allowing it to go from in and through and then back out Mm -hmm. without controlling it like you were saying just the accepting is very helpful you know to get to the serenity to get to understanding to get to compassion to get to love is like a process of, of doing and breathing constantly throughout the day when I get that anxiety or whatever's going on with me, I just take that moment to, to breathe. You know, I don't even have to think about it too much. It's inhale and exhale. And for me, that works quite well. Yeah, that's great. So I think the, um, uh, from what you were saying, um, you know, you don't need to think about it like when you're, you say you're getting ready for work, shaving and dressing and stuff like that. So then the awareness practice, you don't have to think about it. It's even just feeling that, like just feeling that razor, you know, it's like so simple. Like it's not like you have to be particularly like smart or anything to, you know, just really feeling it. 
like feeling that coldness, feeling the wetness. You know, it can be very enjoyable, even these really basic activities or, you know, putting on the shoes or getting dressed, like just feeling like, what does it feel like to put, you know, this cloth like that? And just experiencing that, right? Um, so that's, you know, it is, uh, you know, in the sensed is only the sensed. Like that's totally that practice of just being there with what's actually happening. Um, the, um, the term that you used, I just wanted to, ch- to check a little bit about the, um, the part about the sort of wholesome unwholesomeness of different states. So in Buddha's teaching, they're pretty clear to avoid the sort of correct incorrect, just because there's a tinge in that of like, this shouldn't be happening, right, of incorrect, right? So, uh, you know, some people think like, oh, it's kind of a wordplay, right? So unwholesome versus incorrect. But actually the unwholesome, I mean, it's just another mind state coming, this anger, this fear, and so on. So it's not that it's incorrect that it's there. Like the fact is it's there, except that like that's part of our life too. But also the recognition that, you know, the wholesome states lead lead to uh, us doing things, saying things that are more wholesome, like more beneficial in the world. And then usually things that we do are harmful to ourselves, to others, are usually fueled by unwholesome, right? So uh, the correct, incorrect is just like a slight, uh, there can be like this judgment in there that's like a little bit unhelpful, you know what I mean, on, on these different states. But, uh, but I appreciate your comment, particularly the, like it's not like you have to think in those, in those moments. It's just like, yeah, this is what it feels like getting dressed. And it can be really beautiful, right? Thank you. So it can also be very beautiful for all of you to go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nine o'clock. Uh, maybe we'll just sit together for a few seconds, minutes, and dedicate the merit.